It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Celtics, your daily Celtics podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, I'm so hyped right now. Anything's possible. Oh, my mama. Oh, my mama made it, ma. Anything's possible. Rainy days. Jump shot, fade away. This the best Celtics podcast day to day. I get excited about it like when Tatum play a Jalen on the breakaway, a Kyrie when he make a trade, and nothing like the terrible analysts on the TV. So in depth that after you play it, you got a repeat. So in depth they might do an hour about the D League. So in depth you probably should pay him, but it's a freebie. Yeah, Corrales, Packard, and J. King locked on trying to get the 18th ring. And well wishes go to Gordon. Listen after every game is very important, Millie. Hey there, welcome back to the Locked On Celtics Podcast here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Thank you for making this part of your daily routine. We are here for you Monday through Friday, and today I, John Corrales, am continuing our series of interviews that get us through the All-Star break. We hope you have enjoyed the past couple. Michael Nye with his book and Dar Adams talking about basketball and music and hip-hop culture. Today, we are talking about the... Larry Bird, Kevin McHale interview that aired Monday night on NBA TV. This was a must watch. So if you haven't seen it, search for it online because you have to as a Celtic fan, even if you know their story, you just got to watch it. You just got to see it for the sake of being able to watch Larry and Kevin McHale talk basketball. But there's some really, really interesting stuff. And my guest tonight is Chad Finn from the Boston Globe who wrote up a big piece about the, the the interview. He got an advanced screening, so that was on Monday's Globe. Go check that out. We talked all about the, the whole interview from the, some of the revelations, like Larry Bird being nervous, uh, the finger injury, the ends of their careers, Kevin and Larry, and just the our favorite thing was the dynamic of the sheer depth of knowledge that, was displayed by Larry Bird, and to hear him and to hear Kevin talk about that was just amazing. Chad and I talk about this. Uh, we had a nice long conversation, so that's coming up. I just want to implore all of you who are not subscribers, if you're just coming to the show for the first time, please subscribe to the podcast. Search for Locked On Celtics wherever you get your podcast and subscribe. We are here Monday through Friday all season long to give you Celtics knowledge from top to bottom. I, if you're just joining the show, I played. I played a little bit professionally in Europe, so I I definitely come at things from a player perspective. Jay King also played in college. He also is the Mass Live Celtics insider. So uh, he gives us that perspective. And then, of course, there's Sam Packard, who just loves to get the jokes off, and, and he's really funny. So we have a nice little dynamic going. So you didn't get that on this show because it's just me and Chad, but check out past episodes, and we hope you subscribe. If you are a subscriber, please rate us five stars. We hope you enjoy the show. So without further ado, here's me and Chad Finn. All right, Chad, so we saw that hour-long uh, discussion between Kevin McHale and Larry Bird, and I, I read your piece uh, in the Globe on this, and I, I will just start out by agreeing with you: an hour was nowhere near enough. <laughs> no, it wasn't. And uh, 
It's funny. I talked to Mikhail about it on Friday. The thing debuted uh, Monday night, and talked to him, and he said, "Yeah, you know, the the best stuff was really when we were playing golf or having a few beers or talking before and after." And I'm, I'm just thinking, man, if we just had a camera running during all of that too, you, know, you could have had a three hour show instead of an hour. Um. <laughs> uh- it's just, I, I think the interesting thing for longtime observers of the Celtics is that, and they kind of addressed it in in the program. There, there's always there was always that talk about Mikhail and Bird didn't quite yeah. get along. You know, Mikhail was a little more gregarious. He was a little more outgoing. You know, he did the Cheers episodes and stuff like that. Bird was just basically just leave me alone. I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna mow my lawn, and then that's it. You know, so it was interesting that they they kind of talked about that a little bit, but you could see that there there was nothing more than I guess like the regular, like they said, butting of heads in the you know in the course of playing, you know, a decade plus with each yeah, other. Yeah, like Mikhail said, uh, I think he said it to me instead of in the the interview, but ninety nine point nine percent of the time. Uh, they got along famously. It just happened to be once in a while they would butt heads. You're having a bad day. Uh, something goes wrong on the court. You know, you lose a random road game to the Blazers in 1986 or something like that. And then you get frustrated with each other. It was, their relationship was documented really well in uh, Jack McCallum's book, uh, Unfinished Business. I think I think it was uh, Diary of the 91 season when things were starting to really shift when Brian Shaw was here. D Browns. It was D Browns' rookie year, and the the, the core guys from the uh, great '80s teams were getting older. And he he got into it a little bit in there. And basically, the genesis of it was uh, Bird thought Mikhail was a really awesome player and could have been even more awesome if he was as serious about everything as Bird was. Mikhail just uh, incredible player, worked hard, gave it his all on his court, on the court during the games, but away from it. He let it go. He didn't let it hang over him. He didn't let it affect his mood. Uh, he moved on to the next thing. He was probably joking about it 10 minutes later. And sometimes that drove Bird nuts because Bird was so laser focused on it. But uh, when they had those 48 minutes together on the court, they were the same way. And I, I think that's what they remember now all these years later when they're in the late their late 50s and Larry's in his 60s now. And uh, reminiscing about those days, it's uh, they remember the good times above any little argument had here and there. Man, that just hurt my feelings when you said Bird is in his sixties. Oh, <laughs> he doesn't look it at least. No, he looks good. He looks good. He looks good. Uh, you know, I always say that, and, and I got to be careful nowadays how I say this, but the best of the best—the Birds, Jordan, Kobe—they have something in their brains that is it, it doesn't work properly and for for them it it it's to their benefit because it's that thing that just drives them to be just better there's always a thing like magic that famous thing like they would take 300 shots cuz he knew magic was out there doing the same thing and it just drove him where most people We'll sit there and not even like, I don't care shit what magic is doing right now. Like, oh yeah, magic's working hard. I'm working hard too. That's, that's good enough. But you know, guys like Jordan are still carrying grudges during his hall of fame speech from a high school. Like that's, that's not right. That's not right. You know, these guys, 
And and like you said, that's the difference between Bird and McHale. There's just like a, a slight the thing that makes Bird just that slight bit ahead and makes him see things the way he sees things is just that there, there there's like a screw loose. There's a it's just something that in a normal functioning brain where we have our balance and we don't let things get to us, he doesn't have that. It, and it's it's not necessarily healthy, but it also is something that turns him into one of the top five or ten basketball players of all time. Yeah, they're basketball psychopaths, you know. It really Russell is. Russell probably had the same thing. Uh, I, I think mm-hmm. Kyrie has it. You know, you, you look at you look at who Kyrie is right now at, at his age and accomplishing with now that he's he's got his own team to orchestrate. But you look back, how many players have hit a game-winning shot in the finals in Game 7 on the road against one of the greatest teams of all time to win a championship? You, you've got to be a little bit... Uh, beyond ballsy to, to be able to do that. You've got to have some mechanism in your brain that makes you think, you know what, I'm I'm the greatest in this moment right now. And Larry, Michael, and Magic certainly had that all the time. I think we're still figuring out what this generation of players has. I think LeBron does. I, I, I think Steph Curry does, even though he seems like a really nice human being for the most part. Uh, I think they all have that killer instinct or whatever you want to call it. And it, it is a think it's a defining thing between uh, from a great player from being a great player to being somebody that uh is absolutely transcendent within the sport yeah i mean this is just a different a different league now social media not for for better for worse it has changed the the element and you know the the player movement the the collective bargaining agreement that encourages player movement uh the sharing of agents and sneaker deals and it's just really changed things you could see even look the larry and magic is a great example of how something as simple as a common sneaker endorsement can change the dynamic between two players because Larry and Magic, you can through their history had a an adversarial type of thing. They they did play together uh, on the uh, national team uh, at, at a very young age, but it was strictly business for Larry Bird. And it wasn't until they shot that Converse Weapons commercial in Indiana yeah. that Magic got to sit down with Larry and his and his mom, and and you get to sit there and you say. Larry, that's when Larry realized, like, oh, this is the exact same person. We're the exact same person from two different places, right. and we have just different personalities. Now, everybody's got those common shoe deals. The shoe, shoe thing's a big deal, and it starts from such a young age that you can see, even from that old school scenario, that it's hard to it's hard to like hate everybody like we always wanted to, you know, hate like we hated Lambeer, you know? So... It's just it's just interesting. Today's NBA, I think, is a little bit different. Well, one of the things I really liked about that conversation was that these are two older guys who are really accomplished. And a lot of times when you see guys get to the age that they're at, they become bitter. Or they become territorial about their time and what the league was like when they were in it. Neither one of these guys are like that. Maybe because they've both been involved with the NBA in a couple significant capacities. They both were coaches. They both put teams together. Uh, so they, whatever you want to call it, but neither one of them is bitter. Both of them like the league right now. But the one thing that they both do lament is that teams don't hang out together like they used to. That uh, 
you don't have that bond because you're traveling commercial. You're stuck in the airport at 2 a.m. together. Uh, you're all always, as I said when they were talking about when they didn't get along, well, I was I lived with you for 12 years straight. Of course I need to get away from you. It's not like that now. Where the, the world is smaller, and uh, <laughs> the, the superstar who plays in Oakland it can still be a good friend with the superstar who plays in Cleveland or Boston or wherever it happens to be. The league is tighter. Uh, the money is just so incredible that uh, you tend to start to have loyalties, maybe not to the uniform you're wearing, but the, the sneaker company on your feet. So uh, it's really changed significantly in that way, and I, I think it's made the community of the NBA closer, but the individual teams not as tight as they were in Magic in uh, Larry and Mikhail's heydays. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely a lot of that. I like the the fact that you brought up the whole bitter thing. Uh, it contrasts nicely with the comments that Charles Barkley was making over the weekend. Charles Barkley is bitter, and he's exceptionally bitter. And I, I think it's it's kind of silly because he's, he's upset at the schedule being changed to try to help prevent injuries. And when you look at like Barkley had injuries that might've been prevented if he had a a different schedule, Mikhail certainly did. Uh, Everybody did. And he's just, he's so bitter about guys living the good life now, but they, this is just a product of what, Larry, Mikhail, Barkley, Bird, I mean, uh, MJ, all of those stars. This is a product of what they started to build. And he should be more proud of it than anything, in my opinion, that because of them growing the game to that point, that's what made it possible for these guys to have this. And I think going to kind of like the end of this episode where Larry makes this amazing point to, to talk about how bitter he is not, yeah. That he he loves this game. He loves the way the game has gone, and he just says that uh, he hopes that these players can turn around and set things up for the next generation. You know, the the stars of today, the big time. You know, the the ver- today's versions of them, which would be you know LeBron and Durant and those guys. They need to kind of set the stage for the Jason Tatum's of the world, the the rookie class that comes in and say, Hey, this is how you prepare yourself. And this is how, and just be, be happy for whatever part of NBA history that you're in. And just understand that you are setting the stage for the next generation. And hopefully they have it even better than you. It's a very parental way to look at it. Like I want my kids to be better off than me. And I, as an NBA legend want, future NBA, NBA legends to be better off than me. Cause that means we've grown the game and we've done the game justice. And if they're not doing better than us, then that means the league's in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's funny because you see in the interview, there's so much great footage with this and you see, you hear Mikhail in the interview saying when I was a coach or when I was running the Rockets or the Timberwolves, I would tell my players, if you ever see Larry Bird or Magic Johnson or David Stern, go shake their hand and thank them for what they got you because they built this league. And then you see this clip of James Harden doing that. And yeah. James Harden is probably the reason Kevin McHale is no longer an NBA coach. And he also makes <laughs> $50 million bucks a year. So that That's is uh, whatever whatever he makes. So 
he's someone who should be damn appreciative. <laughs> he should be shaking everybody's hand. But uh, I, it, I, I like the. Maybe it's a generational difference, but I like that Mikhail and Bird both have it still in in context of how fortunate they were. This uh, Mikhail is a great story about when the Knicks were trying to sign him as a free agent in '83. He was real close to going there, and Red countered with a typical Red move and signed three of their players. And uh, with the whole compensation situation, Mikhail ended up coming back. The Knicks did the wrong thing and kept their own guys. Uh, but Mikhail made a million bucks a year then, and he was talking about how uh, he came to camp after that, and you know, media questioned him about it, and some reporter asked him, well, how do you justify making a million bucks a year? And you, you can kind of bust on Mikhail a little bit with that kind of question, and, and uh, he would just sort of laugh at it, and he, he thought about it, and he said, can't justify it. I make a million bucks a year playing basketball when I used to you know, shovel the driveway and ride my bike down to the, the rec center just to have a place to play every day. So I, you know, when I was making 200 grand as a rookie and, and Bird says when he was making 650 grand during his career, it was more money than they could ever imagine having. And now you have guys who I think coming into the league, one of the appealing things about the league is they know they're going to hit a jackpot if they're, if they're a good player for a couple of years, even on their first rookie deal, they're going to make a lot of money. So uh, back in those days, in the early and mid '80s, before the league had built up to what Bird and David Stern with his vision, uh, I don't think you had players coming to the league thinking they were going to become super rich. Now you do. Yeah, I mean, just look at Jason Tatum's contract. He's making five and a half million this year and six and a half million next year. He's guaranteed to make you know twelve million dollars in his first two years, and considering that he's really good. He gets to make almost eight, then almost 10 and in the years after that. He's making more in his first four years than I think Mikhail made in his entire career by far. So, you know, yes. it's that's the, again the beauty of the league. That's you've set the, the future up where the league is is so good. Hey, when they started the playing, those guys. That was the days of tape delay, and they brought that up. And I love the big highlighted recorded earlier on the bottom of the screen during the interview. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, can you imagine watching a playoff game now at eight p.m. that was played three hours ago? That I, I, I it's ridiculous. But I tell you, I was, uh, I mean, I was, I was eleven, twelve, thirteen years old in the, in the early eighties, and I remember becoming a huge basketball fan. Late 70s, uh, but the first Celtics team I remember was the horrible one the year after after Havlicek retired, you know, Rowan Wicks and all mm -hmm. those guys. And that was sort of the, the nadir of the league, the, the bottom. And uh, I remember watching, wasn't the, wasn't the Lakers Sixers, but it was the other Lakers championship, I guess, 82, where the game didn't air when I was growing up until at the 11 o'clock news. So uh, whatever game it was of that, of that 82 Sixers Lakers series. Uh, I think it was the one James Worthy broke his leg. Actually, that wasn't on the news on television until 1130 at night where I grew up. So it just, it's so unfathomable now because uh, you have generations of, of kids and, and fans nowadays who, uh, you know, they spend, uh, they spend their day anticipating that tip off to, to the, to the cap. NFL teams making bold final moves before the start of the season. From our local experts to your ears, these are the biggest stories on the Locked On Podcast Network. 
The Tennessee Titans have announced a one-year deal with linebacker Jadavion Clowney, reportedly worth $15 million. Tyler Rowland of Locked On Titans tells you if it's going to be enough to get Tennessee back to the AFC title game. In other moves around the league, the Miami Dolphins named Ryan Fitzpatrick starting quarterback, which means Tua will be back up for the time being. And the Detroit Lions have agreed to a one-year deal with running back Adrian Peterson. Peterson was released by the Washington football team last Friday. For more NFL news and analysis, subscribe to the new Peacock and Williamson NFL show and listen to a brand new lineup on Locked On NFL. They'll have division previews every day this week. Local experts on the biggest stories. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You're up to date on your favorite team, but what about the competition? Hollinger and Nate Duncan are evaluating every bubble contender on Hollinger and Duncan. Rejecting the screen goes behind the scenes with in-depth interviews and the Locked On NBA podcast is recapping games daily. Let the Locked On NBA network of podcasts take care of your NBA bubble scouting reports. Hollinger and Duncan, rejecting the screen, the Locked On NBA podcast. Subscribe to the best trio of NBA podcasts on the planet wherever you get your podcasts. Cavaliers, uh, you know, game four of the Cavaliers-Warriors series or whatever it happens to be the big series deep in the playoffs that's going on. And uh, it's such a TV ratings are so good and it's such a must-see event for a sports fan that it's hard to fathom that it was something that took a back seat to Sunday afternoon programming, you know, 35 years ago. I feel like we should be doing this podcast in rocking chairs on a porch drinking lemonade. Right. <laughs> because I was, I remember when I was a kid, we, you had to, if you, I couldn't stay up to watch the news. So I had to hope that the West Coast games were over early enough where the scores made the early edition of the paper. And they often didn't. I remember opening up the newspaper, which for younger listeners was a large (laughs) sheet of, no, it was the morning paper would have your scores, you know, Cleveland Knicks and blah, 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 blah. And then you would have your West coast games and it would just say late next to it. And you were just like, oh man. So the Celtics would be in LA playing the Lakers and it wouldn't be until two or three the next afternoon. When the evening edition of, for me, the Providence Journal or the Pawtucket Times would come out and you'd have to buy a second version of that day's newspaper to open up to the sports page and go, oh, we lost or whatever, you know, like that was, and then you'd have to, sometimes you just never got to see the highlights. You just never, it just never worked out. So wild time. Now you don't even have to watch the game. You can watch just on Twitter and people will tweet out the highlights and you'll get an entire game flow. All right, back to this episode. Uh, The first thing that jumped out at me was a story I didn't even know about Larry Bird. Before he came to the Celtics, he was playing baseball and a short hop ruined his finger. And to hear him say, the ball never felt right to me in the pros. I always liked the way the ball felt in my hand better in college. I can't put I can't wrap my head around that because Larry Bird was obviously one of the best shooters we've ever seen and to think like 
Oh yeah. I just, I, I didn't have a real great feel for the ball. If how, how can you have, how can you say that to me now and put that thought in my head that you liked the way the ball felt when you were in college, but eh, your finger got busted and you, you dealt with yeah, it. Yeah. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? It's hard to fathom that he actually had a better feel for shooting at one point than he did in the NBA. But hey, I've heard that before. And then he mangled that f- finger playing softball and, uh, you know, you look at his hands now and they point, his, his digits are pointing in all different directions. He looks like an offensive lineman's hands Ugh. a little bit. So uh, I, the amazing thing about that was that I think he put it like, yeah, I had to make a little bit of an adjustment to my shot. Uh, not many guys, uh, I can't think of many players who would sort of be able to do that calculus in their head to figure out, all right, I, I mangled this finger, my shot is off this way, this is what I need to do to fix it, but... Uh, he did and, and repaired it to a point where it's as good as anybody's shot we've probably any, ever seen, and yet wasn't good enough for him to compare to the Indiana State jumper. So Bird comes into the league, and I'll jump around a little bit to get a little more chronological, and he talks about being all right. Like He, he comes into camp, and he gets tested, and he realizes, like, you know, I, I, I did okay, and I'll be all right. Now, that is the Cedric Max- Maxwell story, right? Where Maxwell came up and tested him and Bird just started hitting threes over his, you know, right in his face. Yeah, I don't know that. I didn't know who he was talking about specifically when he he said, uh, I remember he said he called his high school coach or his college coach and he said, yeah, I'm going to have a really good year. This was his rookie year. And he called them because he had played against some of the veterans on the team. But he... he, he he made a point to say a couple of times that they weren't in really good shape, and I was trying to figure out who he, who he meant specifically. That yeah. would line up to be Max, I f- though. I feel like this is the story where he reported to camp, and this was to hear Max tell it. This was the the you know oh here comes the great white hope, and it was basically Sidney Wicks and Curtis oh, Rowe, and they they were not in great shape. That's that's the story that I've always heard, and then basically they were just gone. Like they ended up getting cut. And then Maxwell's like, well, let me, let me give this, you know, this white boy a shot. And then, you know, bird, bird hits a shot and he goes, Oh, okay. That was a good shot. Now let me really try to check him. And then bird hits another shot. It goes, all right, all right, let's try this. And then it hits another shot. And he goes, damn, this white boy is going to be good. <laughs> and that's, I think that's like the, the story that was kind of left out. Like if, if that's where you would edit in Maxwell's story, but I, I have heard Maxwell talk, tell that yeah. story. Which is hilarious because Bird comes in and is just like, yeah, I, whatever. Right. Pretty accomplished young player at that point too, Max. I mean, I feel like with that cast of characters they had on that team, I suppose it was possible that he could have gone either way. He could have ended up being the player that he became. And, and in my mind, one of the really underrated Celtics of the 80s because he was re- as responsible as anyone for putting up. kind of gets overlooked because people – love the 86 team with Walton so much and, and Bird and McHale agree that was the best team they ever played on. But, uh, it's not, I, I think, you know, I think it's mm-hmm. a credit to Max that, uh, he got out from under that, that group of, uh, miscreants that they had <laughs> post, uh, post and before Bird. And that, you know, only took three or four shots being buried in his face for him to realize how good Bird actually was and to, uh, get on board with what, what they were doing. Yeah. And now my favorite, stretch of this whole thing and the the part where I was just completely mesmerized. It's not just the stories of these guys talking to each other, which is always fun. Whenever old teammates get together, they end up just reverting back to the, Hey, hey, remember that time? And Hey, remember that time? And that's always fun. But 
Bird talking about becoming a playmaker and being, you know, how Kevin McHale liked to get the pass. You know, McHale said, you always had this knack where I could hold a guy off with my right hand. You always put it right in my left hand. And Bird was like, yeah, I knew if I put it right there, it would just get you right into that little baby hook in the lane. And when it was Robert Parrish, I had to put a little bit in front of him because Robert Parrish liked to go get it. You know, and you had to get that ball up high. And and that whole thing was a very nice uh, insight into how his brain worked. And the fact that Larry Bird knew very quickly early on in his career, uh, like in high school, that he was very good at figuring out his teammates. And that, that might be what made him as great as he was, because on top of being able to hit shots in people's face and tell Xavier McDaniel, I'm going to hit this in your face and then doing it, he was able to know like, okay, Kevin likes it like this. Parrish likes it like this. I got DJ doing this. I got Ainge who likes to shoot the three and, and all of that stuff and, and learning a step back jumper from a teammate that we've never heard of. Like all of that stuff was just fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things I really liked about it too. That was uh, kind of not necessarily a deep dive. I mean, you got all you wanted about the uh, bird and McHale, obviously two of the big superstars. And they talk about chief and DJ and Danny a little bit and the guys you remember really well. Walton, there's uh, a little segment about him, but uh, they get into like ML Carr and how revered he was. And, you know, people under 20, 25 years old here probably think of him as the guy who tanked the 97 Celtics, you know, tried to get the uh, uh, Tim Duncan pick and, and, and not having it worked out. They don't realize that he was an absolute bulldog of a player who brought a, a real winning attitude here when he came over from Detroit. So, uh, clear, McHale and Bird really think a lot of him and how he helped them early in their career. Uh, the guy that Bird took a step back from was Terry Durod, who was a, a garbage time all star, a little guard, came in, fired up jumpers. Would have been a, would have been a uh, probably a more useful player had his career happened a little bit later because he had really good range. He could have been a, a three point specialist, you know, like a Craig Hodges type. Maybe not the good of a shooter, but a, a similar skill set and. Uh, he used to play Bird and McHale and anybody, any takers in a while, just bury shots in their face. And, you know, told you that, that Bird and McHale, too, were always watching, always paying attention, always trying to find some little thing that they could take and implement and add to their own game. Even if it came from the 12th man on the roster who was, you know, out there to check up four jumpers in the last 45 seconds of a blowout. That was uh, that was really impressive to me that, that uh, guys, players of their magnitude still looked around and tried to find things that uh, would help them no matter whether it came from a superstar or some, or some guy uh, deep down the bench like Durod. Who was it that he said was his favorite teammate? Oh, man. I don't remember. Michaela Bird. A, a bird. Well, he, he'd always said that DJ was his favorite team, but he I forget. Yes. Trying to uh, totally drew ML? a blank. Yeah, it might have been ML. Where just He just appreciated like the, just the drive. Um yeah, yeah I think it was ML. Uh, uh, and it just uh, it goes to the whole point where these guys, it, it's not just uh, thinking about themselves. They understand, like Bird knows he's better than everybody on the floor. He always knew it. And it, within a very short time getting into the pros, he knew he could do basically whatever he wanted. Side note, I think it was really interesting that he said, 
that it was almost easier in the pros to get the stuff off that he wanted because in college he kept getting yeah. double and triple teamed. And I just never really thought yeah. of it that way. And in the pros, everybody had to be guarded and it suddenly became a little bit easier. Just, I thought, I thought that particular part was interesting, but it's just the, the depth of how they saw the game. And, and we don't, I think outside of it, understand how how deeply these players and it, it still applies to these guys today you know when you hear Kevin Garnett Kevin Garnett's the first guy I heard call it a craft and since then I think it's caught on I don't even know if he made that up or stole it from anybody but to you have to understand so many different things and and Bird talked about it when you're drawing up a play like you, you drew up a play and it wasn't just about executing what was on the whiteboard. It was also understanding like you had to ad lib at the same time because you went out there with Bill Fitch saying, this guy goes here, this guy goes there, you go here, and this is where the pass goes. But then the defense does yeah. something completely different and everybody has to be so intensely knowledgeable that you at the same time have to understand, oh, I know Maxwell is going to cut back door and I see it. And I think he sees it. And if I see him, the second I see him twitch, I'm putting the ball where he's going to go get it. And that, to me, just goes to show, again, depth of knowledge of the game. Yeah, it reminded me of what Tom Brady and the, the Patriots receivers do, where uh, if if the cornerback shoulder is turned slightly to the left and you're breaking off your in route and you're going to the flat, you know, whatever it is, and they, they all have to read it the same way. And what, as Bird was talking about this during the uh, during the interview and the documentary or whatever you want to call it, they showed footage of him taking an inbounds pass. Uh, he's the inbounder on the sideline, uh, and he's just scanning. You know, like you see, you see him looking around the court, seeing, okay, who's where, who's doing what, is there a mismatch, uh, maybe making eye contact with a guy to, to sort of connect, you know, go back to our max, or, uh, you know, you can uh, – you can get the angle inside, uh, you know, on this guy, Mikhail. And, uh, it, I mean, it's, you know, it's nothing new to us. We, we know that Larry had that capability, but it's just a, a fascinating different kind of level to hear bird and Mikhail, who was the guy on the receiving end of so many of those passes and who was making that mental connection with bird so often before those plays unfolded to, to hear them talk about it and sort of, you know, what they saw in the moment, what they connected on in the moment. And, even as you mentioned before, the the little nitty gritty details of how Bird would put the ball in Mikhail's right hand to lead him directly into the layup or something like that. It's just so what they do and and what they did is is uh, it. I mean, it was incredible, right? But to to know the depths of it and to the, to know the intricate details of how they actually did what they did, and to hear these two guys talking about it and reminiscing about it thirty years, thirty five years after the fact, it's uh, it was. I was hoping this interview was going to be awesome and it was beyond my expectations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I am such a basketball nerd that just thinking about them talking about, like, I, I literally, my adrenaline starts to pump. Like my, my heart starts beating faster when I hear these things. It's, it really is like falling in love with that moment all over again. And it happens whenever the greats are talking about the things that they see because look I've I've played basketball I was pretty successful at it from you know just in comparison to the general public and just to see 
how much I really don't know right. about the game is I, like, I love it. I love it because I feel like I know a bunch. I feel like I've done pretty well and I know a lot about basketball. And it's like saying I'm a, a college science professor and these are a bunch of Albert Einsteins walking around. Like that's the difference. Like these are, you know, the Elon Musk, you know, the, the, just the, the genius, just yeah, the, yeah. the friggin' like, what? <laughs> like you saw, wow, wow, that's amazing. Uh, I, I just, I, I love, I love hearing all of that stuff. I could sit there and listen to him talk about the intricacies of how he throws a pass for an hour alone, just right. like that. Uh, so uh, another thing I was a little bit surprised, you know, and, and maybe not because I, I remember being nervous before games. And I remember the stories of uh, 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 Bill Russell, Jesus Christ, Bill Russell, <laughs> always throwing up before a game. Yeah, yeah. Players are nervous. And Bird said, I was so nervous before the games, I couldn't wait until they started. But there's this element of anticipation and the butterflies happen. And then getting on the court and you go, oh, okay, here we go. Just stepping between the lines. I love that because it just highlights a couple of things. First of all, that Bird, despite all of his greatness, is human. And as a human being, before a major event and you step out in front of 20,000 people, yeah, you get nervous. Like they all do. And maybe some guys in today's game might not admit it, but there's there are butterflies before games. But also just the zen of being between those lines. And when we hear, like last year, when we heard Isaiah Thomas after the tragedy of his sister, you talk about the, the basketball court ends up being your sanctuary. And just that to highlight, I'd like that conversation because it highlighted that humanity, but also just he belonged on that court. And these guys belong there. And just stepping on there and getting into layup lines became this natural, uh, okay, everything's going to be fine. I'm dribbling a ball. I'm putting it through the hoop. We're fine. We're good. Yeah, it's uh, it was a, it was a happy place for both of them, right? It was uh, it was uh, I, I guess maybe part of it's when you're so awesome at something that you're gonna find your comfort there, and both of them were. <laughs> I mean, they both obviously worked incredibly incredibly hard for that too. But uh, yeah, I think in in life you you want to get to that level with anything that you do, where you find this one thing that you're so uh, so comfortable at and so good at, and so find so personally satisfying that when you're doing it, you, you're, you're in a, uh, you're almost like in the zone, you know, almost, uh, uh, just at ease and poised and all those things that maybe in other aspects of your life, you struggle to find sometimes, you know, Larry, uh, Larry never really was thrilled to talk with the media. He was good with, with guys he knew and, and, you know, Jackie McMullen, other reporters, he knew very well, Shaughnessy, Bob Ryan, but, uh, other times he didn't want to talk, but if you asked him about something specific, like we just saw this interview about something that happened on the basketball court, he he would have a hundred percent recall of what happened and what he was thinking and what he saw three steps of uh, ahead of what any of the rest of us saw. And uh, it's just, I mean, the word for it is genius. And uh, of course, you're going, when you're a genius at something, 
of course, that's going to be the place where you're the happiest in the world. Uh, it's you don't just get to be good at it because you're skilled. You get to be good at it because you love it and you're passionate about it and you worked really hard. Success. Yeah, uh, we're gonna end this podcast on the ending of their careers that they talked about, where that moment of, and they each said it. There's a moment of, what am I doing? Where the just pounding and it's it's just you put your body as great as they are again this is the humanity and and one of my one of my ongoing things i've always tried to focus on humanizing these players because i think it's so important for fans to understand the humanity behind the greatness that they're not just robots out there they're not video game sprites that have just energy bars that you know, when they get a little bit low energy, you sit them down and you get that bar back up and they're not human. They are human beings that have real issues, real repercussions. It's something as, you know, cosmetic as the finger bending the wrong way and you deal with it for the rest of your life. Or like Kevin McHale played through a broken foot and he's just never going to walk the same again. To, to see these guys talk, there, there's a little bit of sadness and there's that saying that every athlete dies twice you know, once when he dies, once he, when he retires, you could see a little bit of that in, in, in just the, the pain of not being able to do what you've done. And that kind of realization of like, man, this thing that I've loved to do my entire life, my calling, my, my passion, the thing that's brought me the most joy and that's given me the greatest notoriety, it's going away. And I have to come to grips with that. That's hard to do. It is, yeah. I mean, it, it must really suck when you're so good at something like they were, and then it starts slowly falling apart on you, whether because you're just getting older or physically injuries are, are starting to intervene and becoming harder and harder to overcome. That's what happened to both those guys. It was interesting, though, John, because the, uh, you know, Larry was talking about that. Mikhail was talking. I, I think they segued into it by talking about the teams that they played on. The, the best team they played on and then the team they played on that they shot thought should have won. And, you know, both agreed 86 was the best. Uh, Bird thought 87 or 85 was the team that should have won and didn't. Mikhail said 82, but that's when Mikhail started having his foot injuries. And uh, this sort of led into them talking about how, how the end was coming and how they, they were ready to go but because of the frustrations and the pain by the time the retirement did come. It was really interesting to hear Bird say when he got off that podium after formally announcing his retirement, he felt like the weight of the world lifted off his shoulders. You'd think it would be this enormous moment of sadness. It's something I've done my whole life, but it had become such a burden to him at that point because of the back issues and the heel issues and everything he dealt with that when he was done, he was uh, he found himself happy that he was done. It was really remarkable to hear him talk about that. Yeah, it, and that's that I feel like is is rare because you you're yeah. more likely to have like um, what's his name Brad Miller that remember the Brad Miller crying on the bench big guy yeah big guy I think it was at Sacra yeah. Sacramento at the time and he knew his career was over and now it's Brad Miller like he he had nice career certainly nice career long career but he he didn't want it to end. And that to me was, uh, you talk about human moments, sitting there crying on the bench, knowing like, this is it. I'm never going to be, 
I'm never going to be in the locker room again and never going to be hanging around with these guys again. And and that's the honestly the thing that that makes them hang around too long. Guys that hang around, maybe you say, "Why why is he still going? Why doesn't he retire on top?" And people want that grand storyline of you just won a title and you, you know, go ahead. This is your chance to ride off into the sunset. No. Yeah. No. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. I'm 44 and I would give anything to have another year in a locker room playing ball with those guys. I don't want to go through the pounding. I don't want to go sit there on a training table anymore, but you know what I want to do? I want to ride to practice. I want to be in the locker room. I want to be stretching with those guys. I want to be traveling with those guys. That's the stuff that most of these guys miss. It's that camaraderie, that family, that fun, yeah. that youthfulness. And and to have your body betray you and take that away is is that might be the hardest thing. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that Bird handled it as well as he did, but Bird's just a different character. Just tells you how heavy it became for him to, to know yeah. that he was no, it's true. He was gonna play at the level that he wanted to play at. And it, it all the work that he had to put in, all the physical therapy he had to put in just to get out there, just to be able to stand upright for, you know, thirty two minutes a game, whatever he was playing at that point was just became too much. But the thing, you know, those guys, I mean, in the end, they decided, okay, I'm walking away. A lot of guys don't even have that, you know, don't even get what Brad Miller got, which is to know that their time was up. A lot of guys, they just don't get a job the next year. You know, all of a sudden, nobody wants you anymore. And uh, I guess there's maybe some satisfaction in that for them, that even though they were ravaged by injuries, they ultimately got to, to, to determine when their careers were ending. Mm-hmm. And I, I will add to that. I think there's a respect for the game that they have. And I think point. bird especially, but you know, I think they, when they, to hear bird say, I couldn't do what I wanted to do anymore or what I needed to do on the court. That is a, you know, I, if I'm not going to be helping my teammates, if I'm not going to be putting out the best possible basketball I can play, then there's no point in me doing it and hanging on. Even some guys, they have personal, like I said, the personal thing they say, I'm going to stick around. But for Bird, who played at a super high level, if he couldn't give the game what the game needed, then I think he'd had enough respect for the game and for his teammates to say, I can't, I can't give it to you the way I, I, I want to and the way you deserve to have it. So I got to go. Yeah. Imagine if he'd hung around like Chief did, you know, played till he was 45 or whatever. Oh, man. I don't know. They would have had to, <laughs> I mean, him. you know, just robotic exoskeletons to get him out there <laughs> playing. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Um, I really appreciate, uh, you know, you taking a, a little bit of time and late uh, on, the, on the Tuesday night for our Wednesday show. Uh, but, uh, Look, this is this is my favorite thing to talk about, Larry Bird and the glory days, and and you wrote a great piece in the Globe covering this, and and I know this is this is kind of your wheelhouse too, so I appreciate you, yes, sir. <laughs> appreciate you taking the time out to talk to talk to this uh, talk about this with me. I'll talk about those guys twenty four seven. It's great stuff, uh, and it's I, I think the the history is really important to to relive, and it's just so much fun. So again, thank you very much. Thank you, John. Glad to come on with you. Just another great conversation with Chad Finn about a topic that I just love. Old school Celtics, Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, just talking basketball at the highest of levels, but with a human side to it. 
just like the show wasn't long enough, I could have talked to Chad Finn for a lot longer, but had to keep it to a manageable level. So, but follow Chad Finn on Twitter because he's got, uh, he's just a great follow on Twitter. It's at Globe Chad Finn. And if you are a new listener, if you're one of Chad's followers, follow me on Twitter at Reds Army underscore John and follow the show on Twitter at Rainin underscore Jays. So Rainin, no G underscore JS. So if you follow me, I'll just be retweeting everything anyway. And if you like that show, just know that we're talking Celtics all the time on this show. It's five days a week. And once the games start up, we'll be doing post-game podcasts. We're here for you Monday through Friday. So subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Search for Locked On Celtics and subscribe to the show so you get it directly to your phone or your app or whatever it is, wherever you get your podcast, it'll be there right away. And I hope you enjoy the show. If you are a subscriber, again, a five-star rating would be amazing. A good review would be amazing. But most importantly, share the podcast and spread the word. Let everyone know, please, to listen to the Locked On Celtics podcast. We are part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hi guys, this is Josh Lloyd, host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast. The NBA is back, so that means that fantasy basketball is back in one form or another. We've got daily fantasy, but there's also some fantasy leagues with the resumption of play with these eight regular season games in Orlando, and Locked On Fantasy Basketball is going to have you covered. It's not just for fantasy basketball, though, because we recap all of the games across the NBA, so if you're looking for a broad overview of the action across the league every day, Locked On Fantasy Basketball is the podcast for you.